Hey guys, this is Ash. You know, this week is the one year anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety, and we figured it's probably time to put it to bed. As Professor Joseph Ibrahim said on the show last year, it's finished, it's gone, and it's in the hands of the government now. Well, we've got an election this year, and we all know that's going to translate into lots of promises of improved care, of improved funding, and all this good stuff. It's hard to tell what will come to fruition and what will be spin. But today's episode presents a view that, you know what, let's just ignore all of that and focus on what we can do ourselves. Our guest today is Lou Pascuzzi, the CEO of TLC Care. And Lou's got a lot of radical ideas about how to reshape aged care services in general. He's passionate, frustrated, and as you'll hear at the start of the conversation, his results speak for themselves. There's a little bit of background noise, I should say, but what Lou is talking about is so important that I reckon you won't even notice. All right, let's run the intro and get into it. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Awesome. Hey, Lou, thanks for joining us on the show. No problems. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. And uh, just before we hit the record button, we were talking about how you guys at TLC Care, you've, you've actually taken the step of distancing yourselves a bit from the industry, creating a cocoon, you said. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, look, eight years ago when we came into the industry, we saw that the industry was quite disjointed. There was um, no real cohesion between government, the providers, albeit you know, not-for-profit, for-profit, or government providers, as well as the industry bodies. So um, we did consult with everybody, with all industry bodies and government uh, authorities. But when we found how disjointed it was and they weren't really going to add any value to what we were trying to do, and that was to change uh, the platform from a uh, cookie-cutter residential aged care platform to an integrated healthcare platform, the fact that they weren't going to add any value, uh, it was just easier uh, to go it alone. And ultimately, we did that. And over the last eight years, we've achieved what we've wanted to achieve. And we still have a, a lot more that we're looking to achieve over the ensuing five in our next five-year plan. But we have, in recent years, established greater relationships with both the state and federal government, which has worked well. And they like what we're doing. So ultimately, um, it was great to be able to start robust relationships uh, with them. Great. And to be specific here, you're talking about peak bodies and industry groups that you're not trying to work through them so much, but having your own relationships with government? Correct. Absolutely. And uh, it's no criticism of them. We just thought, look, we want to engage with those that might be able to add value to our business and, and to our end service recipients, whether they be residents, uh, the patients of our medical centres, uh, the students of our training organisation, or now indeed members of our gyms and uh, children that will soon frequent our first childcare centre, so early learning centre. So we wanted to engage with uh, anyone that could add value. And at that point, they weren't able to, and that's fine. So we decided to go it alone and, uh, and look, it's worked for us. Yeah, great that you found your own way through it there. You're joining us today actually to talk a bit about COVID letter rip, as we're calling it, 
affectionately, unaffectionately, whatever you want to describe it as, what's the experience been for you guys at TLC? Oh, look, we're pretty proud of the way we've managed COVID. We, um, for the first 22 months, so up until mid-November last year, we had zero cases across our 11 residential aged care homes, 1,600 residents and uh, 2,500 staff. So we were really proud of that. And you know what happened in 2020 with a lot of residential aged care. And you know what happened last Mm. year, uh, especially in New South Wales, with the prevalence of COVID in residential aged care. So we're really proud of what we achieved. We engaged uh, mandatory rapid antigen testing. Obviously, we had uh, mandatory dose one, dose two vaccinations as well. And we were also the first to mandate uh, dose three vaccinations, of which all of our residents and staff were vaccinated by the end of November last year, all to minimise the risk of it coming in. Now, it has seeped in because with residents able to go out with their loved ones and stay overnight at family members and go out on uh, on excursions and day trips with their families. They were going to bring it back in. But our early identification system, our rat testing, it was able to identify those. So we've been able to keep any outbreaks to minimal numbers, deaths to two passing away with COVID, not of COVID, of the 1,600 um, uh, residents and indeed uh, 2,500 staff. And again, minimising the absence of staff through isolation or through close contact isolation. Uh, So that uh, constant rat testing and and that mandating of vaccinations has uh, resulted in our homes um, receiving or able to manage COVID a hell of a lot better than most. And so even now to this point, we're touching uh, obviously February, Uh, we've had minimal cases, we've had uh, minimal home restrictions. So at this point, we have none of our homes that are fully locked down. We might have a corridor of 10 beds restricted to visitors, and that's about it. That's how finite our infection control protocol has been able to develop, obviously, with the influence of our unique primary healthcare system. Obviously, as you may or may not know, it's been a lot easier for us to manage COVID because we've had uh, co-located community medical centres at all of our residential aged care homes, which means rather than waiting for Sonic to come in and swab our residents, we can do it on the spot. And Sonic sometimes, or Dorovich, would take two or three days to come in and swab residents for PCRs. And ultimately, then it's too late. The outbreak's grown and it's hard to manage. Whereas with ourselves, the fact that we're internalised and able to uh, administer those services ourselves, we're pretty proud of what we've done. But, But I go back to Ash as to the why. We've relied on ourselves. We've basically done this ourselves. We've achieved this ourselves. The primary care model has been instrumental over the last two and a half years, having doctors on site and being able to have our own immunisation nurses and our own ability to PCR test. It's basically resulted in a better ability to, number one, minimise any outbreaks, but number two, eradicate them very, very quickly. And we keep developing every day. Like I said, we knee-jerked in uh, late November when we had a couple of cases and we locked down a whole home for, for three or four days. Well, we're not doing that anymore. Our infection control has evolved through the consultation with our doctors and, and nurses to basically now restrict two or three rooms rather than an entire home. And that's brought a, or maintained a quality of life in TLC homes. But not only that, uh, protected our staff as well. So at this point, we're quite happy with what we've achieved. But again, we have gone it alone. I mean, um, rat tests provided by uh, the government, yes, they do provide them. 
but they are limited to outbreak homes only. They're not limited to homes that want to adopt preventative measures. So we've had to spend the best part of $1.25 million on rat tests to take that mandatory anyone that walks into the home approach to rat testing to minimise any, uh, any outbreaks. And to that end, I'll let you know that ultimately we've conducted around 450,000 rat tests since we mandated it late last year. Uh, and we've had 370 positive cases that we've stopped at the front gate. That would have been 370 outbreaks. So ultimately, there's method to our madness. As well as that, you know, vaccinations. Rather than have Healthcare Australia or, uh, or Aspen come into our homes, we applied for the government contract through our uh, medical centres and we administered our own vaccinations. And we did it so well that the government has now afforded us contracts to vaccinate 130 other residential aged care homes around our homes. So I hope that sort of paints a little bit of a picture of the benefits of why going out on our own and really not waiting for anyone else to move, we have innovatively diversified through concentric diversification to be able to ultimately provide that better service in-house to the ultimate user, which is our resident. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Thank you for outlining all the different ways you guys are approaching it there. It's really great that you can be so proactive and, and using your resources and your facilities to not only you know, protect the residents and protect the workforce, but the community around you. As you mentioned, the, the rat tests there that only if you're in an outbreak and there's been shortages as well, it sounds like a, a lot of the policy that you guys have taken is very proactive, whereas what the government has done has been quite reactive. You're right. And again, it's because really, if you look at both state and federal governments, it's been policy on the run since February uh, 2020. It's literally mm. been policy on the run. And again, even our own epidemiologists, anyone that's or the AHPPC, the running commentary they've given is literally stating the bleeding obvious. None of them have actually added any value to basically or anything visionary that was going to assist us curtail this. So the way we look at things and the way we've been looking at things for the last eight years is what definitively can governments absolutely provide us in terms of support? Once that's defined, then we define, well, what do we need to absolutely protect our people and provide or minimise risk for our people and provide the service that we think is required. The gap between that, and there's normally a significant gap, rather than lobby government to close that gap, which, you know, it's, it'd take too long and, and then you'd be unsuccessful in most cases. You take what the government's going to give you, but then the rest, you've got to chase yourself. And that's what we've done. Rather than sit and wait and lobby, we've said, right, we can be guaranteed both governments are giving us this. We need this. Let's close the gap ourselves. And we've made the investment. We've had no choice. If we weren't dealing with people's lives, Ash, we would have waited. But the fact that we're dealing with people's lives, there's no way, Ash, I was going to wait. It'd, be, it'd, it'd basically be irresponsible of us and absolutely negligent of us if we didn't move forward with what we needed to provide the, the optimal solution. Uh, and that's what we've done. Yeah, that's great. I mean, what's the difference here between yourselves and other providers? Is the the board can help in this instance make these decisions? Is it that there's the funding to be able to make these investments in the long term? How come you guys could achieve this and others are struggling? Look, look it, it all comes down to board level because I know a lot of executives out there in residential aged care, a lot of the CEOs would love to do 
what we've done, but it requires that support at board level. And no one can tell me that funding's an issue because we're getting the same funding as anybody else. The difference between ourselves and others is others are charging compulsory additional fees where we're not. So if anything, they're actually generating more income than us. So in terms of having that income, as long as they've used their bond regimes well and in accordance with government legislation and permitted uses, and as long as they've reinvested money back into the business itself, there's no reason why none of them could do it. Ultimately, the problem in residential aged care is most board members have either, one, been in the industry too long and too set in their ways. So even if executives or CEOs come up with initiatives to change and they look at a TLC model and think, hey, we can replicate that, why don't we do it? Ultimately, they don't get that support from the board because they're basically set in doing what they've been doing forever and a day. And ultimately, if we fall short of money, the solution is put your hand out to government, right? Just lobby the government and guilt the government into we're looking after the elderly here, give us more money. That's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable solution. Or the other issue is a lot of these boards have are outweighed with academics. Now, academics have their place. Adjunct professors, professors, they all have their place. But ultimately, most of them have no idea how healthcare works operationally on the ground. If you actually have a look at almost every outbreak where there's been significant deaths at any home, especially in 2020, you'll see a significant presence of academics on those boards. And look, for me, I think the boards need to be more heavily skewed with a more diverse range of people, commercial, clinical, yes, academic, but ultimately some people that are also outside of the industry or from the broader healthcare industry, just to bring different perspectives different ideas into the fray. And that's what we've got with our board. Our board is very supportive, but I think one good thing about our board is that they're entrepreneurial. It doesn't take a business case from me and a three to six month justification duration for me to actually get something that just makes sense over the line, even if it hasn't been done before. Yes, it requires a business case, but because they're, if something makes sense, the turnaround on support is very quick. So I think our nimbleness with regard to the relationship between the board and the executive has also assisted in our being able to achieve what we've achieved very quickly. Hey, did you know we launched a new show this season? Hello, I'm here with Daniela Greenwood. And I'm here with Maury Voicey-Barlin. That's right, Daniela and Maury are back and they're joining us every Friday for their new show, Who Cares? where they'll be taking a quizzical look at some of aged care's challenges and exploring what they mean for all of us working in the industry. I'm really stumped by how what the resolution is here because I think there's a lot to dig into. You would have been better working at McDonald's, Murray, because I they've got a good set. I could have been somebody, Daniela. <laughs> I could have been somebody. You are a somebody, Murray. You, and the more I learn about you, you're an amazing oh, somebody. Oh, thank you. I think the same. It's a double dose of podcast fun each week and you can find it right here in the Ace Feed every Friday. You're going to be the new <laughs> Minister of Ageing if it's the last thing I do. You've stumped me a little bit here because I'm so used to having conversations with CEOs where it is the government's been negligent in X, Y and Z or we just spoke to Paul Sadler from AXA very recently and he said quite similarly, you know, we need X, Y and Z from the government and, and you're advocating for a much more self-sufficient 
you got to just make it happen yourself kind of approach. Absolutely. And, and, and look, the government can only do as much as they can. Don't forget, we're dealing with bureaucrats here. And a lot of them don't understand healthcare. I mean, don't forget Richard Colbeck, he's come from forestry and natural resources. I mean, he's got no idea when it comes to healthcare. When he, he's come into aged care now, he's come into aged care recently and wasn't in it for long uh, where Greg Hunt then stripped him of certain you know, responsibilities in that space, and, 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 and rightly so. Because, again, a lot of these people making decisions, even in the public health unit, look at the inquest now with John Kane, the coroner John Kane, with regard to St Basil's. You know, he's starting to realise that it wasn't just the provider that was substandard, it's also basically governments. You know, ripping aged care staff out and putting acute care staff in. I mean, why would you do that? That doesn't even make sense. They're two completely different people. You've got aged care staff and nurses and PCWs that have built up relationships with those residents for four, five, six years, whereas an acute care uh, staff member might deal with a person for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days through an operation, but then that's it. They are completely different people and uh, they are completely different working environments. If you're going to take class actions against the provider, which, you know, any substandard provider, I support that. But ultimately, governments have had their mistakes here too. And very quickly, this inquest is starting to shed a light on that. And I really rate John Kane and what he's doing. It's a fantastic inquest. It should have been done a long time ago. The Royal Commission should have picked up a lot of this where it didn't. That was really underwhelming, the Royal Commission. And ultimately, John Kane now, hopefully, might be able to, um, to provide not only shed some light on the true happenings during that time, but not only that, attribute absolute responsibility to the different parties that had a hand in what was one of the darkest uh, times in residential aged care. Yeah, absolutely. Looking for some accountability there. None of this I forgot and I can't recall. They need to stand up, Ash. They need to stand up and just accept the responsibility. Yeah, I don't Hmm. know too many CEOs in residential aged care that go through a year, 2020 let's call it, or in any industry, any CEO in any industry, gets it wrong a thousand times, a thousand deaths, call it a thousand, seven, eight hundred, and still keep their jobs, whether it be in the regulator, whether it be in the government, whether it be in the state public health unit, uh, or whether it be in the federal government. At the end of the day, all these people have kept their jobs, Ash. Yeah, CEO, one death and you're gone. End of story. All these people have had a thousand chances. And how do they sleep at night? How do they go home at night, sleep at night, enjoy their families when a thousand people have died? They're gone. They don't feel anything. It's the 20, 30, 40,000 relatives. If you take it on, you know, 10, 20 relatives per person, they're the ones that are suffering. And through known error, through known negligence, through proven substandard practices, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It really is. Well, do you see a way forward to real accountability here or or are you pessimistic about the reality of how this is going to play out? Absolutely pessimistic. I mean, we've got precedents here with regard to hotel quarantine. No one was held accountable and no one really fell on their sword apart from a couple of uh, ministers that Daniel Andrews uh, uh, said goodbye to. I mean, ultimately, the crux of it where so many more people were involved and so many more people should have been accountable. Unfortunately, this amazing adage of non-response or non-recall or uh, fail to remember is now becoming an acceptable excuse 
no mm. matter whether it's ICAC or IBAC or whoever's looking at this, ultimately it's becoming an acceptable excuse, which is really sad. It really is sad. It's actually criminal, to be honest. Yeah, well, I know that uh, Minister Colbeck is not the only responsible party in all of this, but one particular instance which has made headlines now, we're at the end of January, but couldn't allocate the time to a Senate inquiry into COVID and aged care because he needed to spend three days at the cricket. There's, there's some things that just dumbfound. I, I really can't understand, and a lot can be said for many ministers who go MIA when ultimately they should be there. Yet, uh, look, look, you, you even had our who's our who's our current minister for health? Is it Foley? Right, Foley, yeah. and his annual leave when he basically asked nurses as a result of the code brown asked nurses and in hospitals to uh, to cancel their leave. I mean, come on, you've you, you've got to <clears throat> lead by example. Ultimately, uh, any CEO, any senior person will always tell you that. He hasn't been in the John Long. Most of us have endured COVID since mm. February 2020. Yeah. There are clearly problems within the industry and, and within accountability as well. well. We've spoken a lot about entrepreneurial spirit and taking responsibility for the people you look after. Are there limits with what you guys are able to do or what providers are able to do, you feel? No, no, no. There's no limits at all. The only, the only limitation is funding and how one manages that. Uh, I mean, if you go back when we started introducing uh, medical centres into residential aged care, it wasn't a permitted use. We couldn't use bonds to build those medical centres. But as soon as the government started to see the benefit of what we were doing, and we were using you know, retained uh, funds for that, we weren't using bonds, they came out with an, an amendment to the permitted use uh, legislation saying that if you put a medical centre in your home, you could use bonds to, to build that medical centre. But that's great. I mean, why aren't they doing that with more? There are providers out there that are doing things differently and it is working both from a better service outcome point of view, but also from a commercial sustainability point of view. Why wouldn't... I'm not scared of copycats. At the end of the day, and, and this is one thing that really surprised me, Ash, the Royal Commission, you had the uh, ANMF, Victoria, uh, a representative, get up on the stand and say ratios were required, higher rates were required, and one of the commissioners actually said to this, uh, and this is in the transcripts, you can have a look at this, Ash, one of the commissioners actually said to this individual, is there a provider out there that's operating at those or close to those levels? And he said, yes, TLC. The commissioner then, then went on to ask and, and, and said, have you been able to coerce any other or promote that platform to any other providers and have any of them uh, engage with that. And he said, no one's been able to because they say they can't afford it, right? Now, ultimately, just on that, don't you think the Royal Commission would have reached out to us and said, yeah, listen, we want to talk to you. We want to learn a bit more about what you're doing. No, they didn't. But this is where it's really disappointing. Through our lawyers, course, Chambers Westgarth, I offered to speak to the Royal Commission in camera and basically open our books and show them what we had done. They rejected us. I then, that was on two approaches, formal approaches from our lawyers to counsel assisting. I then sent, when I saw it, when I, especially when they released their interim report, which was just terrible, you know, anything in that interim report, you could have learned from a Four Corners episode or a 60 Minutes episode or a current affair three, four months prior to that. I then sent counsel assisting a personal email from myself offering the same again, to which I received another rejection. So ultimately, they, we have a solution here and they didn't want to speak to us. And this is why I'm disenchanted. I'm disenchanted mm. with the industry. There's better ways of doing this. And 
I don't know. I just would have thought that after eight years and after our ability to show what we're doing works in practice, not just in theory, I would have thought that a few more would have said hello to us. Yeah. yeah that must be incredibly frustrating to feel like you're on a gold mine and, and nobody's paying attention. To shift gear a little bit and, and return to something that you mentioned before about workforce shortages. I mean, every cafe, every business in, in the East Coast of Australia is suffering shortages right now. Is this something you guys are having trouble with? I know some providers are requesting ADF assistance. How are you guys going with Well, on with a couple workforce? of those points, with regard to workforce, you're right, everyone's feeling it. Uh, and we are too when it comes to um, especially close contact isolation and those that have actually contracted the virus through their own mandatory seven-day isolation. But again, about five years ago, Ash, we introduced our own internal TLC on call, which is our own internal agency staff, which basically provides us with a bank of every discipline of clinical and professional job that we require or responsibility that we require that are all security checked, TLC trained, are allocated certain homes they, so that they're familiar with those homes and their systems. And they're literally sitting around on a very small payment from us waiting to be called in. So for the last five years, we've been using our own bank of internalised, uniformed and security checked TLC staff. And as a result of that, that's what's kept us going and kept our, and, and it's kept our shifts being filled. And we haven't really significantly felt the effects uh, of the staff shortages. Now, however, it is really pushing that system. But still, we're achieving. We're just keeping our heads above water with regard to having the available surplus staff to cover the staff that are uh, forced to isolate. We've also instilled the policy that because we have mandatory rat testing at every home before you walk into the home, if you are a close contact, rat testing negative, turn up to work, rat test at our front of house station. If you rat test negative, go to work. That's where we're at at the moment. And they're the things you have to do. Now, hopefully that person won't become infectious during the day if they do indeed have it, because rat testing will only pick up if you've got the virus, if you're infectious. If they do, we'll get them the next morning when they come in, which means we can actually lock down the areas where that particular staff member worked, rat test everybody, all residents and so on. If there's one or two cases, we limit it to one or two cases and manage it accordingly. So ultimately for us, we've been able to look at, again, innovative ways without being prompted by governments or anyone else to try and ensure business continuity through ultimately these two ways of managing the significant numbers of isolating um, staff at the moment. There needs to be solutions that are sustainable, that are basically robust. To call in the ADF now, well, you may as well keep them in for as long as you need them because come winter, not only are people that have caught this virus going to catch it again, potentially, but the other 98% of people that haven't caught this virus, they're going to be more prevalent to catching it again at that time, vaccinated or unvaccinated. For me, these band-aids of ADFs and so on and so forth work on a robust solution and basically work and invest in that rather than band-aids because this thing's going to be here for a long time. So if you want business continuity, start working on it now. Should have been worked on five, six years ago, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. Start working on it now. Yeah, it's nothing but a stopgap for 
something that's not going to be a short time. Do you guys anticipate that you'll be rat testing for the next couple of years then? I will not stop rat testing ash now. It's really the only method to ensure early detection. The earlier we detect that someone has it either in the home or approaching the home or a visitor wanting to come in the home or a staff member, whatever the case, the quicker we can minimize any spread and eradicate. That's the only way to do it. So ultimately now for the poor homes and and providers that are applying to the government once they've had an outbreak for rat tests, it's too late. It's Mm. way too late. The outbreak's already set in. So all these rat tests are going to do is reactively tell you the status of the outbreak in the home over time. And that's if you get them on time. At this point, from ordering rat tests to receiving them in residential aged care, it's around a four to five week process. Well, the horse is bolted. You've got to source your own rat tests. I mean, you've, you've got to instill and engage in what's required to minimise this outbreak going forward in a way that provides you absolute supply. And the only way to do that is to take it on yourself. That's the only way to do that. Awesome. We've, we've covered so much. Really great to hear your approach and all of this. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ash. Thanks for having me and good luck with the show and, and well done with your success as well. That's uh, outstanding. The most third show uh, on, on podcast and I really congratulate you on your success. Thanks a lot, man. Cheers, buddy. Well, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Don't forget that each Friday we've got a fresh episode of our new show, Who Cares?, in which Daniela and Maury take another look at the ideas we've been discussing in today's episode and how they might affect all of us working in the aged care industry. It's fun, thought-provoking, and just a little bit silly. And the good news is it's all right here in the podcast feed. So you don't have to click anywhere else. But if you want to make sure you don't miss out, hit the subscribe button and you'll find out exactly when that episode is available. Anyway, we'll see you next week.